This is the recording made in the chapter of the opened book. The covering title of the series being Christian Fundamentals, of which this is number seven and deals with the epistle to the Ephesians. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together. So those of you who are listening to this recording, you care to join us, switch off for a little while, while we read together the third chapter of the epistle to the Ephesians. In this series of studies, we have been making strides through the scriptures and the chart before us has been a flight of stairs and we've been going up these stairs looking at outstanding books both in the Old Testament and in the New. And we've reached nearly the top of the flight this evening with the Epistle to the Ephesians. One more step and we shall be looking at the book of the Revelation which will conclude this present study. This evening, instead of having that staircase in front of you once again, you're familiar with it now, I'm using another chart to demonstrate the way in which the subject matter of the Epistle to the Ephesians is distributed. (coughs) But before we deal with that, I would like just to mention another feature. We are, we are called a group of epistles, the prison epistles simply because we read in Ephesians 3 that the Apostle says, for this cause I, Paul the prisoner, and goes on to show that as in that capacity he received this wonderful revelation. And there are five epistles which are marked with prison. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Second Timothy, and Philemon. Now I don't know whether I'm right in saying this, but there's a tendency on the part of a good many folks today to do what they call debunk. I mean to say, if you're at all interested in Shakespeare, well you know this, don't you? That whoever it was that wrote Shakespeare, it wasn't Shakespeare, it was somebody else, you see? Well now, I've come across another, another feature. There is no such thing as prison epistles. And Paul was never a prisoner. Did you know that? Solemnly uttered, and the, the interpretation given of Ephesians 3, 1 is, for this cause I, Paul, the bound one of Jesus Christ, bound by love and grace, just the same as you are and the same as I am. Well, that's a blessed truth. We are bound to him by love and grace. But I feel that a person who gives that forth and never tells his hearer that the very word that he's dealing with occurs all a number of times and every time refers to a prisoner in a literal prison is hardly a bound one of Jesus Christ because he's bound to honour the word of God. So, as there are some of you who will be listening to this recording will know that, I'm just going to draw your attention to the necessity to be Bereans in every shape of the form and form. And one of the outstanding principles to remember in the interpretation of scripture, is never to base it upon a single occurrence. If possible, assemble every reference that there is and then get the common denominator so that you've got something that will include everything that's said. Now I'm not going to waste our time by giving you long lists, you can get that all from your concordances, I'm just putting you on the track. The word translated prisoner is the word desmios, D-E-S-M-I-O-S. And it occurs 15 times. 13 times it's translated prisoner and twice it's translated bonds and the context always means bonds in a prison. 
So practically, every single reference to this word in the New Testament means a prisoner, a literal prisoner, and not a spiritual one. Don't you think it was up to the person who put that other thought over to say to his hearers, of course, if I give you every reference of this word, you may think that it goes against me, but that would have been honest, wouldn't it? Well then, go further. Desmio, desmeno, desmos, they are translated bind, bond, chain and string. And then, if you join it up with a word that means to guard, it's the jailer of the prison. There is not a single reference to the, uh, not a single occurrence of any one of the combinations of this word that mean anything else except literal imprisonment. So that's all I want to say about it. And now we move on and say, Paul had been in prisons many times, as he said so. But there was one imprisonment, which is separated from all the rest, because it becomes his title. And he became a prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. It was a part of God's purpose and will for him. I'd like just to draw your attention to three references in the Acts of the Apostles before we leave this subject. The 28th chapter of the Acts, <coughs> verse 17. <coughs> verse 17 says, And it came to pass that after three days Paul called together the chief of the Jews. And then in verse 20 he says, Because that for the hope of Israel I am bound with this chain. Now, was he speaking about himself as a Christian, just one who is bound to Jesus Christ, as you and I are? Well, it doesn't seem to be uh, any meaning uh, that you can put into a passage like that if you eliminate the idea of actual imprisonment. And then if you look at chapter 20, where he comes to an end of one ministry and begins to contemplate another, he says in verse 23, or in verse 22, but now behold I go bound in the spirit. There's where a man can be bound in the spirit. But he tells you what he means presently. Unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, say that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying, bonds and afflictions await me. Now what are these bonds that are awaiting him? Chapter 21, verse 10. And as we tarried there many days, there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus. <clears throat> and when he was come unto us, he took Paul's girdle and bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus saith the Holy Ghost, So shall the Jews of Jerusalem bind the man that owneth this girdle and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. If that doesn't mean literal prison, however can it be demonstrated or taught? So there it is. Now the first thing to remember about this wonderful, mighty epistle to the Ephesians is that while it places your head in the stars, it keeps your feet on the ground. Oh, it is the most important thing for us to remember that this epistle is so constructed that every item in doctrine finds its echo in practice. There are seven sections in chapters 1 to 3 which are doctrinal. And there are seven sections in chapters 4 to 6 which are practical. And they echo each other. Let's get a sample. I won't take the seven or the fourteen because of our time. Chapter 2, verse 20 and 21. Or verse 20 to 22. 
and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building, fitly framed together, groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. A temple. Now it's a figure of speech in the scripture to use the temple as a picture of the body. Christ himself used it of himself and Paul uses it to the Corinthians. Not, well, know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now if you turn to chapter 4, verse 16, and this verse is in exactly in correspondence, from whom the whole body fitly joined together. In chapter 2 it's fitly framed together. In chapter 4 it's fitly joined together, but they're identical, exactly the same word to the letter. So there we have the way in which the very word sometimes comes out again in the second place. So you can get the new creature or the new man in chapter 2 and you get the new man being put on in chapter 4. Another feature, uh, uh, then I think that uh, uh, another feature will be, uh, will demonstrate this by looking once more at chapter 3 verse 1 and comparing it with chapter 4 verse 1. For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner, of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, if ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me to you all. He's going on with a revelation of the truth to him. Now when he comes to the practical side, <coughs> he says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that ye walk worthy. You see the change in title. He's the prisoner of Jesus Christ. Or, as the revised text reads it, he's the prisoner of Christ Jesus when he's revealing the mighty truth of the mystery. But when he comes to the practical outworking, he changes and doesn't say, I'm the prisoner of Christ Jesus, I'm the prisoner of the Lord. That's all in harmony. So now we've got the two divisions set before us. Then you will find uh, that in verse 1, there is a pivot upon which this whole is balanced, and that is the word worthy. If you notice this, chart, the balance here. We've got the word worthy in the middle and we've got the Greek word written under it, axios. And axios means, among other things, that little finger on the beam of a balance which indicates that you've got it perfectly horizontal. The word is translated in Romans not worthy to be compared. See, the comparison. Worthy, balance. So now we've got the, the idea <coughs> that however much we may deal with mysteries and spiritual things and heavenly places and principalities and powers, it all has a relationship to husbands and wives, servants and masters, parents and children. Right down here in the everyday things of life. And if it cannot be brought into touch with them, so much the worse for you and for me. There's another feature that I would like just to stress in passing, and that is the way in which the word love comes in this epistle. If you're not acquainted with the teaching of Scripture, you may imagine that the love of God is written all over the Bible. I'm sure I've drawn your attention to this before, but I must mention it again because we are recording this study. If you go right through the three Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, you will never read that God loves anybody. You have to go right through the three Gospels into chapter 3, 16 of John before you read the words, God so loved the world. Or, if you take the mighty epistle to the Romans 
which deals with God's grace and our salvation, he never mentions the love of God in chapter 1, 2, 3 or 4. It's not until he can say, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God that he speaks about the love of God. So the love of God is not thrown about easily. It's our most treasured thing and we ought to keep it so. You know, when a person is always using the word love, it ceases to have any meaning. As I think I've told you once in Lancashire, when I went into a shop and the lady behind the counter says, yes, love, instead of asking for what I was going in for, I said, what do you say when you need it? Well, she didn't know what I was talking about till I explained. She said to me, yes, love, you see. But now when you come to the Ephesians, we are accepted in whom? Of all the titles that could be chosen, accepted in the beloved. And that's very, very seldom used, that title. But it's used there. And then in chapter 1, after he speaks of spiritual blessings and heavenly places and the choice before the foundation of the world, he says it's before him in love. I'll put the word there. Blessed with all spiritual blessings in love. You go to the other side of, and look at chapter 4 when he speaks about the walk that is worthy with all loneliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. Still come, doctrine and practice. Or again, if you'll notice at the bottom of the chart here, we have in chapter 3.17, that prayer which stands central, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love. And then, in chapter 5, verse 2, but walk in love. And then the goal, almost the climax of the epistle, verse 19 of chapter 3, to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge. So there we've got an epistle that begins and ends, surrounds you, is based upon and reaches up to this great, incomprehensible love of God in Christ. Well now, these, <coughs> this epistle is of great consequence to us because being written by Paul as the prisoner of Jesus Christ for us Gentiles, it's addressing us in the peculiar position we find ourselves today. The people of Israel, from the call of Abraham, have been marked out in Scripture as the appointed channel of blessing through whom all the nations of the earth will ultimately be blessed. And that is sustained right through the Old Testament so that I think the challenge can be made that there is not one single reference in the Scriptures of a Gentile ever receiving blessing from God independent of the people of Israel. That is after the call of Abraham, of course. And when you come to the New Testament, our Saviour reminded even the Samaritan woman that salvation is of the Jews. And Paul, writing the epistle to the Romans, warned the Gentile believers not to be wise in their own conceits, but to look upon themselves as wild olives graft contrary to nature into the true olive tree of Israel. So, while Israel are here, they take precedence. It's to the Jew first. That's written in Romans. But at the end of the Acts of the Apostles, they went out 
into their present blindness which had been foreshadowed and which now came to pass. And that blindness goes on according to Hosea chapter 3 until the return unto the Lord of the David their king in the latter days. Well, we're living in that interval then. We're living in a period when we cannot be blessed with Israel if we want to be. But God wasn't taken by surprise. He had his plans all made to fit the, the peculiar character of the present circumstances. And that is one of the reasons why it is called a mystery. If you go through the record of the scriptures and the use of the word mystery, you'll often discover that it is introduced consequently upon a failure. The first occurrence is in the prophet Daniel, when Israel were taken captive and their nationality to a large extent interfered with, then a secret was revealed to Daniel, the first occurrence of the word mystery in the, in the Old Testament. Or you come to the Gospel according to Matthew, and when they refused to repent because of his mighty works that he wrought, and then in chapter 12 we are told that he said, a greater than the temple is here, a greater than Jonah is here, a greater than Solomon is here, that is to say, in effect, God's prophet, priest and king is here and you've rejected him. Chapter 13 says now, the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, not the kingdom of heaven itself. And when you get to the end of the Acts of the Apostles and the people are dismissed into their present blindness, then Paul says, I've received by revelation the mystery. And that has to do with the position of the Gentiles, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and fellow partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel, whereof I was made a minister. So the mystery nearly always gives you an indication that some dislocation has taken place by the failure of the appointed channel. If you could coin a little phrase, when history finishes, mystery begins. We're not in the, in the period of making history or fulfilling prophecy, we're in an interim, and it has that character about it. Well now these three, these uh, two-fold sections of the Ephesians, with its seven items in each, will be of course too big an undertaking to do anything except give a sketch. The first thing I will do, and then see what time we have left, is to draw attention to some of the unique features that await us the moment we start reading this epistle to the Ephesians. Unique in the sense that they are different from anything else that had been expressed before. After the introduction, the verses 1 and 2, we read these words. <clears throat> Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings. A literal rendering is even more uh, important. Hath blessed us with every blessing that is spiritual. All spiritual blessings are wonderful enough but every blessing that is spiritual, well, you've got a richness there that we cannot comprehend yet. Now, another one of these debunkings have taken place. We are told that this doesn't mean that at all. That it cannot be contrasted, as some of us have done. We've said, well, you see, in the Old Testament, an obedient Israelite was blessed in basket and in store, it says so. That if they would be obedient to God, he would bless them with abundant prosperity. But you couldn't say today 
that the person who's got the biggest gold watch chain or the biggest bank balance in this congregation was the most spiritual person, would you? Goes the other way oftentimes. But that was ridiculed. That was set aside. But again, it wasn't said to those gullible hearers who may never search and see that in Ephesians chapter 6, the word spiritual is used as over against that which is physical. So shall we see it for ourselves? Verse 12. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness. Well, how can you have spiritual wickedness if you mean holy wickedness? It's simply spiritual wickedness instead of flesh and blood wickedness. So we come back to chapter 1 and we say, it's not flesh and blood blessings. It's not those things which have to do with our natural life that are in view. Oh, they're there. They're guaranteed. But this is something extra. This is something belonging to this high and peculiar calling. And you may say, somebody may interject or even think, but you wouldn't mean to, you wouldn't tell me that Abraham wasn't spiritual or David wasn't spiritual. Well, they may have been friends, but if we're going to be bound by the word of God, never so called. In fact, the word spiritual never occurs in the Old Testament at all, except one passage. And if you like to look that up afterwards, you'll discover that instead of disproving, it only proves it all the more. For it says, the spiritual man is mad. So I'll give you that, you see. You can have that. That's the only reference to the word spiritual in the whole of the Old Testament. So we've been using it in a wrong sense. It's we that want to be corrected, not the Scriptures. When God says, I'm going to bless you with every blessing that is spiritual, is introduce something new. Let's be thankful for it and not carpet it or criticise it. Shall we move on then? Where are these blessings to be enjoyed? In heavenly places. Well, again, that has been criticised. And it, we are told that it doesn't mean anything about heaven at all. It means among high beings. Going to be enjoyed on earth, but a high order of beings. Well, we can't keep on at this, but I do want you to remember the search and test. So if you look a little bit further down this chapter, it says that Christ was raised from the dead, verse 20, and he was set at God's own right hand in heavenly places. When he ascended, we are told in chapter 4, he ascended up far above all heavens. And where he ascended far above all heavens, is said to be in heavenly places far above all principality and power. And then Colossians 3 tells you to set your affection on things above where Christ sitteth at the right hand of God. So there's no doubt, no doubt that he's there and that's the centre of all our hopes and where our blessings will be enjoyed. Then we have in chapter, chapter 1 verse 4 a unique reference with regard to a believer being associated with a period before the foundation of the world. You know you can go through the Gospel of Matthew and other places and you can find that there are certain parts of God's purpose which are dated since or from the foundation of the world. Matthew 25, when he sits upon the throne of his glory and all the nations are gathered before him, he divides them as a shepherd divides his sheep and his goats and he says, Come ye, blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you 
from the foundation of the world. But here's an occurrence which is different. This is the only passage where it's used of believers. The two other passages are used of Christ only. We'll look at those in a moment. So let's get this unique one. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Now let's get the other two. John the 17th chapter. Our Saviour in view of the cross and with his work done. Verse 117. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. Verse 5. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Verse 24. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that thou behold my glory, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. That's Christ. That's not a believer there. He was loved before the foundation of the world. Now in Peter, we find a reference. The first of Peter, chapter 1, Verse 18, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. So there are three references, and three references only in the scriptures to before the foundation of the world. Now in John 17, the, the connecting word is loved, and in Peter, it's without blemish. Now when you look at Ephesians chapter 1 again, because you'll see that the very two words that are used of Christ are used of his believing people here. Ephesians 1, verse 4, According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame, that's the word without blemish in Peter, before him in love, that's the word in, word in John 17. So what the Father saw in his beloved, before the foundation of the world, we dare to say he now sees in us. Only because we're in him, because he goes on immediately to say, verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Well, now we cannot set these things aside and say, well, we're making too much about these differences. They are so essential. They are written on purpose. They are part of the inspired word where every word must be given its true value. So here in those few verses, <coughs> we have a collection. Spiritual blessings such as never been enjoyed before, in heavenly places which have never been opened before, the nearest approach to this is the epistle to the Hebrews, where we have Christ passing through the heavens, the tabernacle of which God pitched and not men, which is in the heavens, and a seated priest at the right hand of God. But never once does it suggest in Hebrews that any believer was there with him. Oh, that would have been something that they could hardly have tolerated, because they knew in the type of the Old Testament that when 
The high priest went into the holiest of all, that is to say this sphere. The curtains fell, and there he was alone. No man dared to go in. And so terrified were they as to what would happen to them if the high priest were to die in that holy presence that they added to the commandment of Moses and the high priest always had a rope tied round his ankle so that if anything happened to him, they could get him out without being there. And the Hebrew says, he entered once, alone, every year. Then he comes out to us, poor outside Gentiles, who had no hope, no Christ, no covenants, no promises, no fathers, and says, you can go right in where these angels fear to tread. It's almost unbelievable, isn't it, that we can have access where angels veil their faces. What a position we have. And it's all summed up in those words, accepted in the Beloved. Well then further down this chapter, we have this company, this church, given this title. Verse 22, has put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body. Then he expands this church and its title, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. And that's almost unbelievable, isn't it? This church is the fullness of him who in his turn fills all. It's almost associating them with the unique glory of the Son of God. And there it's written. This church is called the body of Christ again, in, um, or a reference is made to it in the unity of the Spirit, chapter 4. There is one body, one Spirit, comes into the unity of the Spirit. And then we are told in chapter 4 that there is a practical outworking of this. Verse 16, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplies. So you see there's the members of this body in the practical side. There's the body as a whole in the doctrinal side. We mustn't lose ourselves in the mass. There's a danger. And that is the reason why, after giving you the unity of the Spirit in verses 4, 5 and 6, with the one body and the one Spirit, it says, verse 7, But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. And we shall be speaking more in modern terms if we change the word every to the word each. But unto each one of us, in contrast to the whole company looked as one, to each one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. It's not the lot of us doing something. It's the lot of us doing something. You see, I've said it a little differently if I could. It's not the whole mass of us. It's you and you and me. Because if we are members of the body, we've all got a function. We were used to be told that there were useless members in our body and when the surgeon had a chance, he nipped them out. But they ceased to do that. They found that they were nipping out something which was functioning and they didn't know it. So now they leave it behind. Well, there are no useless body members in the body of Christ. Not in God's estimation. They may be in the way they work it out. But they're there. You may be uh, a very back room boy or you may be very prominent. That doesn't matter. The eye cannot say of the hand, I have no need of thee. So every member, it says here in chapter 4, 
according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the building up of itself in love. So there we have the emphasis once more on love, in love. And then in chapter 3, or chapter 2, he brings before us a figure borrowed from the temple that was at Jerusalem. He says, I'm addressing you, in verse 11, and I'm calling you to remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called a circumcision in the flesh, made by hands. So you know the people who are now the recipients of these blessings. They were once Gentiles in the flesh. Gentiles in the flesh. And then at the end of the verse 12, they were in the world. Well, it's bad enough to be in the flesh. Or it's bad enough to be in the world. But if you're in the flesh and in the world, well, you're pretty hopeless. You see, in the flesh would now be expressed by a psychiatrist as being heredity. And in the world would be expressed by the sociology lecturer as your environment. Well, it's only the same, the same thing. Something you've got inside you, the flesh, and something you've got outside you in the world. That's where you were. Gentiles. And then to show them their hopeless condition, he goes further. At that time he were without Christ. Now that would be true of every unbeliever. But it was very, very true of the Gentiles as such. Because this is written with Romans the ninth chapter in mind. And if you haven't got Romans the ninth chapter well in your mind, it might be worthwhile turning back to it to see the contrast. There he tells you the difference between Israel in the flesh and the Gentile in the flesh. The Gentile in the flesh got nothing, but Israel in the flesh had all blessings. That's the difference between the two callings. Romans 9, verse 3, For I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So there's no doubt he's speaking of a literal Israel. Who are Israelites? To whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises. Whose are the fathers? And of whom as concerning the flesh is back again, you see, Christ came, who is over all God, blessed forever. Amen. So Israel always entertained the hope that Christ should come from them according to the flesh. It could never be said that they were without Christ in their hopes and in their prophecies and in their scriptures. But these people, at that time, you were without a Christ. You didn't even know there was such a person. It didn't mean anything to you. Being aliens from the commonwealth, and that word commonwealth is the word citizenship. Aliens from the citizenship of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise. Whatever covenants there were, you were strangers from them. And consequently, having no hope, and without God, without Christ, without God, in the world. They're the people that are dressed. Now the change, but now. All what a lot hinges on those little words, but now. You see in chapter 2, verse 4, after speaking about walking according to the course of this world and being 
used by the prince of the power of the air, and being by nature the children of wrath, even as others, but God, who is rich in mercy. What a change. But God. So here we have, but now, he is our peace. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes are far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made the both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Now that was well known <coughs> when the Apostle wrote those words, that that referred to an actual feature in the temple that stood at Jerusalem. And if ever you are in the vicinity, uh, back behind Oxford Street, and you care to go to the Palestine Exploration Fund's office, I, I think you'll find the door shut. Some people have looked at it and been timid, but I think you've only got to turn the handle and walk in, and you'll find in the office, which is accessible to anybody, is one of the tablets that once stood in the temple at Jerusalem. It's not a copy of it, it's the original. You can stand and look at the very words that Christ himself has read. You can stand and look at the very words that Paul himself had read, and to which Paul refers. Now that slab of stone says that no one being a foreigner must pass this balustrade. Whoever does, does so under the penalty of death, which would immediately follow. So he says to these people a bit further down, verse 19, Now therefore you are no more strangers than foreigners. A very word that's found on that stone. The middle wall of partition which would keep a Gentile out and let a Jew go in, as you might imagine, Peter and Cornelius walking together after Cornelius had been saved, and they find themselves in the vicinity of the temple, and Peter, without thought, is still going on. Oh, he turns round to Cornelius and says, I'm sorry, you can't come in here. But he says, aren't I saved by the same salvation as you? Yes, but you can't come in here yet anyhow. There'll be a riot if you do, says Paul, that's over. That middle wall's gone. And the two, the both, have been made one new man, so making peace. All the enmity which once existed as you find in the Acts of the Apostles, between the two groups have now been resolved. Well then in chapter 3, where he calls himself the prisoner of Jesus Christ, he stops to explain, if ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me to you, Lord. So you see there's a stress in verse 1 of to you, Gentiles. There's a stress in verse 2, it's to you, Lord. And further down, it says in uh, conclusion, verse 13, Wherefore I desire that ye faint not at my tribulations for you, which is for your glory. It's something that was directed to the Gentile particularly. And he said, this is a dispensation or a stewardship which has been given to me. And then if you say, well, how was it given to you? He says, how that by revelation, Earlier in his career, he said that the gospel he preached was not taught him by man. It was given by revelation. And here he says, this new calling which I'm now giving to you was not taught me by anybody. I received it by revelation. How that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery. And then in verse 6, that mystery 
is developed and presents us with an exceedingly difficult piece to translate. Because we have three words, each one of them beginning with the preposition S-Y-N, meaning together with. You know that comes in our own English. Synthetics, or a symphony, or sympathy, meaning together. Now you can't say, you could say heirs together I suppose, but you couldn't say a body together. You could say partakers together. The extreme difficulty of translating this has been found by nearly everyone that's attempted it. The only way in which you can get any way near to it is to use the word joint. Joint heirs, a joint body, and joint partakers of his promise in Christ. And then you get somebody say, and what's a joint body? Then you say, well, I don't really know. And I think that's getting nearer to the truth than you might first of all suspect. Because what the Apostle is doing is actually telling you that the constitution of the church at the present time is something that nobody's ever seen before. When he speaks about one body in 1 Corinthians 12, there's all sorts of varieties of members actually mentioned. There's the eye and the ear and the nose and the hand and the feet and some members which are useful but not very comely. That's all going up to make one body. But he says, I'm not talking about a body like that now. I'm talking about a body in which every member is exactly equal with every other one. Well, you'd have to say, I've never seen a body on earth like that before. No, said God, you never will. This is a spiritual company and that's the only way it can be defined. So let's face the fact that we cannot explain it, but we can at least enter into some of the joy of it. That we have this threefold unity, fellow heirs, a fellow body, and fellow partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel whereof I was made a minister. And then, just as we have in chapter 2, the new man, at the end of verse 15, for to create in himself of the twain one new man, so making peace, that enters into the practical outworking in chapter 4. But ye have not so learned Christ, verse 21, if so be that ye have heard him, and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus that she put off concerning the former conversation the old man be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new man. So in chapter 2 the new man is created. You couldn't do that. But when once the new man is created you can put on the new man you can be clothed as it were with the new conditions you can deal with his conversation the old man's conversation and you can see to it that your conversation is always seasoned with salt, as it says a little bit further down. And then the last thing that I think we should have time for is the glimpse at chapter 6, after he's dealt with the threefold order of society, husbands and wives, children and parents, masters and servants. He comes to the finally in verse 10. Put on the whole armour of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. There's a word there for us. We're not exempt from these temptations, this insidious program. Not an assault. Peter says, 
Know you not that this self-same devil is going about like a roaring lion seeking whom may devour? Well, that's one aspect. But he doesn't come here as a roaring lion seeking whom may devour. Look a little bit further back into this epistle. Chapter 4, verse 14. That we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love. Well, there you get much the same thing, the wiles of the devil. And then he reminds you that our antagonists, strictly speaking, are not flesh and blood. Of course, we shall have some enemies in the ordinary course of things. We shall have opponents who are living men and women as ourselves. But strictly speaking, that's only on the outskirts. Our true antagonists are spiritual. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Spiritual wickedness. So the armour of God is against those foes. And unless we put that armour of God, we shall never be able to stand in the evil day. It will never alter the fact that we are blessed with all spiritual blessings, It will never alter the fact that we're accepted in the Beloved, but it will alter the fact that we may not be reckoned as good soldiers of Jesus Christ, which is another aspect of our position altogether. I don't think there's very much more to say except to see how this Apostle, who in chapter 1 says, I pray for you that God may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, comes back on the subject in chapter 6 and says, Now will you pray for me that utterance may be given unto me that I may may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. He said, you can answer your own prayers. He says, I'm going to pray for you that you may be given to see and you pray for me that I may be given grace to make you see. So there was a mutual balance between the two. And isn't it lovely to know that this great apostle who could have stood upon his dignity and wore a halo around his head. He was the one who gathered firewood and he was the one who said, now you pray for me, I need it as much as you need me. Because we're all so interdependent one upon another. He was a member of the body of Christ, just the same as you and I. And then, to finish, after speaking about heavenly places, after speaking of the seated Christ, after speaking about all these wonderful things, He doesn't mind but saying, verse 21, but that ye also may know my affairs and how I do, Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, shall make known unto you all things. All my affairs and how I do. Well, that's coming down to our letters, isn't it? When we write to somebody, we put in little bits about Aunt Mary Ann came to see us and brought so and so and so and so. And I do remember being rebuked once by reading in a missionary magazine that some missionaries out in India wrote back and said, oh, at last we are so glad to get that letter from home. And instead of being mock pious, they said, you know, the thing that thrilled us was to learn that mother had got that half broom at last. They just say, oh, what a come down. Oh, shouldn't they have been shutting their eyes and putting their hands together and all were speaking spiritual things? No. They were right to be interested in the fact that mother had got the half broom at last. They were real people. And when you come on writing, Paul writing to Timothy, he speaks about elect angels. This epistle speaks about principalities and powers. 
We're above all ordinary angels when you're in this realm. Principalities and powers beneath our feet. Principalities and powers being put off. Principalities and powers learning through the church. Elect angels and take a little wine for your stomach's sake and your off infirmities. He didn't mind putting Timothy's stomach in adjacent with elect angels. Why should he? There's no difference in these things. It's all a part of one great concern. We belong to him, body, soul and spirit. May the Lord give us grace to come back to this epistle again and again. And remember that this church, which is so highly favoured and so wonderfully blessed, has been given the lowly title, after all, as the body with the members. But all are blessed to realise that the head of that body is no one less than Christ himself. And then to realise that when we enter into our glorious position, the change will be made. We shall no longer be a lot of members of one body, but we shall then be the fullness of him that filleth all in all. And if you ask me what that means, I'll have to acknowledge that I don't know, but I'm looking forward to being told in God's good time.